Malachi chapter 3. The Old Testament. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. The back story to the book of Malachi is that God's people were in rebellion. That cyclical way of God's people throughout history, right up into current present day, when in our own personal lives, isn't that the way our lives tend to go? We're hot, we're cold, we're hot, we're cold. Well, Israel was in one of those warming, heading for hot very quickly times. And why was that? Because of all the heartache and all the disparaging things that they were coming to realize about their culture and their world were upon them? (laughs) No, no, quite the opposite. It was because they were enjoying good times. Their enemies had finally been contained, and they were enjoying, for them in their world, global peace and security. And in times of peace, and in times of prosperity and good times, the overwhelming tendency of man is to lapse into a rather lackadaisical faith where God becomes, if a priority at all, just one of many priorities. And even the spiritual leaders of Malachi's day became both lazy and corrupt. In the opening chapters of Malachi, we see the consequences that were brought on by God to his people in hopes of bringing them back to him. There are only four chapters in what is the last book of the Old Testament. And the last thing that God has to say to mankind before the coming of the Savior are both horrific and also celebratory. And this is all the more poignant being the very last recorded communication of the Lord to mankind for what will be over the coming four centuries. His words are first terrifying. For behold, the day is coming, Malachi chapter 4, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. This is a dire warning to all of mankind who have rejected the authority and the rule of the king of the whole universe. I don't know how many of you know by name the guy Asaph. He's a pretty minuscule character in the grand scheme of things. But he wrote a psalm, Psalm 73 in particular, which I was taken by myself many, many years ago because it spoke so often and so frequently to my what tends to be an all-too-frequent attitude And what he's complaining about in Psalm 73, which is the way he begins, is a rant. 
And Asaph's reality in the world that he was living was that you had good people and you had wicked and evil people. And it seemed like the, 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 the uh, course of the day was that the good people would end up on the bad side of things and the wicked people would end up on the good side of things. Those who were corrupt seemed to prosper. Those who were honest seemed to get poorer and poorer. Those who were corrupt and unjust would manufacture their own justice so that they would skate free while the good people were the ones who always ended up getting the, getting the shaft. And so Asaph is at this, this point of, I would call it a very real crisis of faith. Because what he is saying to God is, God, man, I don't get it. Being one of your children, being in obedience to you, and trying to live righteously, there's supposed to be some present reality to the blessing here. And what I am seeing is that the good die young, the good get the shaft, and the good are the ones who always wind up on the bad end. And those who are corrupt and evil and wicked, the fat are getting fatter still, the rich are getting richer still, and I don't get it. I'm like, go Asaph. <laughs> I know that most of you can't relate to that. But as Asaph gets done with his rant, he breaks through and he says, (laughs) this is an understatement, and this was troublesome to my soul (laughs) until I came into the sanctuary of God and then I perceived their ends. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Asaph's going, boom! Eureka! What brought Asaph comfort was knowing that there is a judgment for the wicked. No one is getting away with anything when it comes to the judge of the whole earth. For Asaph, this was life-changing. God's last words for a long time are first horrific to those who deny the lordship of God over them, but then his words turn celebratory to those who are his. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who fear my name... The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. I don't know how many of you have ever seen calves skip in a meadow. One of the really fun things that I've enjoyed in my cycling this past season in particular, is that I have numerous loops that go out in Benton and Clinton and Albion, and you go by a lot of farms, and there's a couple of farms on, I think it might be the Garland Road, there's always this one horse that's almost always out there when I come by. And when I come by, I have this strange little thing, and when I see this horse, I go, Hello! And one time, it scared the ever-loving out of it. All I can figure was, he, he had these little blinder things on, and he was eating. 
And I came by, and I mean, I'm a pretty good distance away from him. You know, he's all penned in and everything. And I said, hello, and he, he jumped. <laughs> and I started to apologize. The other thing I do is that there's farms out that have cows all over the place. And I'll drive by, ride by rather, and I'll go, hello. Hello. I really do. I don't know. I thrill myself. You know, you get your mind off the pavement in front of you and everything else. But off to the right, and I'm thinking of this, this vivid picture that's in my mind. There were some little newborn calves out. And this calf, just all of a sudden, just like discovery, hey, what are these four things below me? And starts just like jumping, and it, it was not an experienced jumper. And so it's kind of skipping around like the legs are doing whatever it wants, but it was having such a grand time. And it just reminded me of this little, little infant who's just kind of come to where he can stand on his own and she can, she can just, you know, navigate a little bit and all of a sudden she's just going to explore. It was just pure joy. And so this picture here about what happens when God brings his judgment to the wicked but his judgment to the righteous in Christ as well is that there will be sheer joy and carefree abandon of being able to skip like that calf. Doesn't matter how goofy you look, just enjoying the moment. Now, what do you tend to remember in a conversation or in a letter or in a book or a text, especially particularly long ones? For most people, I think it's the last thing that they heard. And before the Lord withholds recorded communication for this intervening period between Malachi and then that silence and then the book of Matthew in the New Testament, he gives one last jarring warning. But it contains great hope to all who would turn back to the Lord. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, referring to even beyond the incarnation to beyond when the Lord returns and basically closes up the era of time into eternity. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. God's last words before abstaining from social media for centuries are a dire warning to the masses and words of hope to the faithful. Beware if you spurn the Lord's lordship on the one hand. And on the other hand, be of great cheer if you are among those who are longing for the promised redeemer of whom God himself assures the world will come at just the right time. The Old Testament then comes to an end with a lot of history, though, in that 430-year period still flowing under the bridge of time when one day it is interrupted by a heavenly messenger named Gabriel. And he is sent first to an obscure priest named Zacharias and then to the famously well-known teen named Mary. When the four gospel writers take up the mantle of the greatest story ever told, each one views it from a little different perspective, a slightly different angle. John, for example, begins with a light speed defense of Jesus' eternality. 
introducing the Savior as the light of the world, and then focuses on John the Baptist preparing the way and fulfillment of Malachi's words. Luke begins by stating how diligent he has been to research everything that he is about to explain. He's emphatic about the reliability of his research. Mark opens his narrative, skipping right to John the Baptist, already baptizing in the Jordan. But Matthew takes an entirely different approach. He doesn't jump into the gospel narrative with the shattering of silence by the voices of an angelic herald. He begins with a list of difficult names, little known to anyone but the most studied. And you wonder, what is God thinking? Well, what God is thinking, I believe, is that many stories, many myths, legend, fairy tales, and fantasies reside in that ambiance or that notion, that feel of once upon a time. But Matthew begins with the not-so-riveting but oh-so-important words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, with a long list of historical personages following. What is God thinking? Perhaps God wants us to know that every time we open the Bible, we're not imbibing pithy anecdotes or self-help. We're not reading for entertainment, but for enlightenment. The Bible is not like Aesop's fables teaching a wholesome principle or just giving some good advice through a quaint story. The Bible is not advice. Advice is information that is presented to you. It's set before you and then you have to make a decision to do something about it or not. You decide whether it fits your situation. Is it appropriate to your circumstances or maybe even to your temperament? The Bible's not a book of advice. And so Matthew begins the greatest story ever told with a chronological historical record because it is real. It is news of things that actually happened to people who actually lived, not concocted in the mind of creative writers for actors or imaginary characters for entertainment or intrigue, but that occurred on planet Earth, documented over eons of time. It's the beginning of the fulfillment of what God had mentioned in bits and pieces from Genesis all the way through the rest of the 66 books of the Bible and stands alone in its worth because of what it tells us about the unfolding progressive story of redemption. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. A person's genealogy in the day was their life's resume, but it was so much more than that. Instead of joining LinkedIn, you needed to be inked in to validate your spiritual, your social, and your familial connections. In a communal society, it was the record of your origins. It was documentation of your familiar breeding, of pedigree, if you will. If you somehow lost your record of genealogy, which, by the way, was unthinkable precisely because of the importance of it, you were, for all intents and purposes, 
non-existent. I remember again back in the day. Remember Johnny Carson? Yeah, right. There were four nods out there. That's good. And he'd always periodically, he would frequently in his monologue, he would rip on the Department of Motor Vehicles in L.A. And one of the things I remember talking about one time was that, you know, if your name doesn't come up when they put it in to the system, you don't exist. It doesn't matter. No, sorry. You, you, you're, you don't exist. Period. That's how important the, the genealogies were of the people of the day. Your family heritage. Your entire lineage, all of which was based on your name, was crazy important that weighs in ways that we can't even fathom. And one's family name being carried into perpetuity was so vital that God stipulated strange-to-us accommodations called the kinsman redeemer, requiring that a woman who was a widow who didn't have a son to carry on the father's name should be taken as the wife of the nearest family member for the express purpose of bringing a son into the world who would carry on the deceased husband's family name. And again, so the importance of this helps us understanding, as I've said in the past, when I've talked about this mysterious person called Melchizedek, who shows up in Genesis, is talked about in the book of Hebrews. And in chapter 7, we are told that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without beginning of days or end of life, without genealogy. And yet people still insist that, no, he was just a normal human high priest. No. Virtual, as far as I'm concerned, and also John MacArthur, an impossibility. Melchizedek was none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus. So in light of it all, the importance of the genealogies also gave rise, don't go voice, unscrupulous personages of historical significance who were not above expunging their unsavory connections and relatives from their genealogy. Herod the Great was one such example. In order to make himself look more regal, more royal, more kingly. As we read Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, it is remarkable not to be confused with with impressive. I said it is remarkable. Matthew begins the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Stop. Jesus, just for convenience sake, not accuracy, will say was born in 1 AD. David born approximately 1,000 BC, 1,000 years before Jesus. Go back another 1,000 before David, and we get the birth of Abraham. So Matthew begins... Matthew begins at Jesus and then with a giant sweep goes back in time with no thanks to Huey Lewis and the News, 1985. Okay, again, two more. Mentioning only three people covering a 2,000-year time span. But then Matthew reverses the genealogical order, reverting back to Abraham heading now forward in time, taking broad leaps which span the centuries. And what we find in the genealogical record is not an all-star cast, but a some-star cast 
of very shady characters. Matthew highlights the patriarch of the Jewish faith, Abraham. And Abraham, we all know, among numerous other things, passed off his wife, Sarah, as his sister to save his own neck concerning Abimelech, not his finest moment, which he again will repeat. We have Abraham's grandson, Jacob, cheated his brother out of his birthright, basically out of his inheritance and all that. I mean, we're talking about a big deal here. And then he lied to his father, Isaac, while Isaac is on his deathbed, stealing the blessing. Again, hugely important. We can't really relate to that of the firstborn from his brother Esau. Jacob's son, Judah. He engaged the services of a woman that he thought was a woman of the night. He had needs. Unaware that the woman of the night was his daughter-in-law, Tamar who seduces him in revenge for the way that he had been treating her in her widowed state. He attempts to have her burned at the stake for being a harlot until he's presented with the pledge of payment to her and she was bearing a child on top of it all. And through that sin-filled vendetta, Tamar enters the royal bloodline of David. Trotting up the genealogy, Salmon, who always smells a little fishy to me, brings, thank you, brings, okay, you still came around, brings the son into the world through Rahab. Yes, that Rahab, who we are told was a harlot and a Canaanite, and yet she enabled Joshua to escape from the enemy city of Jericho and appears to have become a believer in Jehovah. And through the unlikely hitching up of the fishy salmon with Rahab, the son they bring into the world together is one of the few shining stars named Boaz in an otherwise very tainted bloodline of dysfunctional genealogy. And Boaz, if you know, he appears in the book of Ruth, is a compelling individual and is a wonderful and quite intentional Christ figure a type of Christ. And the woman, Ruth, herself a Canaanite, forsakes her homeland, her native idols, and all that is near and dear to her, binding herself to her former Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi, through whom Ruth meets Boaz, who gladly offers to be the kinsman redeemer, marrying the widow Ruth in order to raise up the name of her deceased husband. And so Boaz, the kinsman redeemer to Ruth, brings about the birth of Obed, who brings about the father of Jesse. Meaning that Boaz and Ruth provide a rare holy break in the utterly messed up and dysfunctional lineage of Jesus. Far from Ruth, the Gentile by birth, remember, would come because from Ruth, the Gentile by birth would come Jesse, the father of David making the Gentile woman from Canaan, King David's great-grandmother. David, who we've been studying in 1 Samuel for a little over a year now, hasn't arisen or, more appropriately, hasn't quite stooped yet to the level that he will as he takes Bathsheba away from her honorable and loyal husband, Uriah. 
David arranges for his murder to cover up his sin with his wife. And how does the man after God's own heart accomplish even this? He hands Uriah a letter to be taken back with him to the field of battle to be given to the commander Joab. What did that letter say? It says, remember, this is now Uriah. He doesn't know what it says. It's from the king. He loyally delivers it to Joab. The letter says, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and then withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. We've only scratched the surface of the genealogy of Jesus, but it doesn't get any better. Why? In heaven's name, then, would the Lord of the universe allow, I dare say, even arrange such a wretched sampling of humanity to comprise the family of Emmanuel? After first beginning with Jesus, Matthew completes his sketch of the heritage of the Savior, starting with Abraham, now ending with Jesus. He begins with Jesus, he ends with Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Matthew then writes in verse 17, Therefore all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the time of Christ, 14 generations. So again, the question, why such a deplorable gathering of desirables. Donald Carson suggests that Matthew tells us why in the birth narrative himself, which commences right after the dubious genealogy of misfits. We read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Carson saying, with a backward glance in the genealogy, we readily see who Jesus came to save. The genealogy, by virtue of its awfulness, is actually amazing. The genealogy, vile as it is, is wondrously glorious for all of humanity. It shows that no one is beyond God's grace. And no one comes to the incarnate God on their own. Not the smart people, not the moral people, the deceivers, or even murderers. But what strikes me with even more awe than this is explained by the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 2, verse 11. When he writes, for both he, referring to Jesus, who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that is the believers, 
are all from one Father, for which reason Jesus is not ashamed to call them, to call us brethren, which means sistren as well. That boggles my mind. Think of your own, and believe me, I don't have to think deeply or long about my prejudices, my biases, my attitudes about people who, who maybe look certain ways or act certain ways or talk certain ways or whatever it is. They may even be brothers or sisters in Christ, and you'd rather just not really have much to do with them. Why? Because you're embarrassed by them. You, me, fellow sinners, condemned to hell apart from the grace of Christ. And we are embarrassed and ashamed of association with other people, whereas God Almighty, the perfect, unblemished, unsullied, holy God of the universe is not ashamed to call you and me his brothers and sisters. Yeah, look at man. This is my man PB. Mm-hmm. One more lesson from the genealogy of Matthew. The generations past showing God's promises may take centuries. But Paul writes to the church of Galatia, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. How many of you over the last, I could probably say maybe even the last year, have said to yourself, or even to somebody else, oh, how long, oh Lord, till you come? How long, oh Lord? What are you waiting for? I mean, come on, we've already surpassed Sodom and Gomorrah. What are you doing, God? Are you really there? Do you really know what you're doing? When? He will again come in the fullness of time, His time, not ours. I don't like that. But he hasn't asked me for my opinion on that. And this is why he, Jesus, is the reason for the season. I'm going to ask my beloved to come up here. Oh. (laughs) And close our time with a thought. As we prepare our house for the coming Christmas season, we would also prepare our hearts for the returning Christ. You came once for your people, O Lord. You will come again for us. Though there was no room at the inn to receive you upon your first arrival, we would prepare you room here in our hearts and here in our home, Lord Jesus. As we decorate and celebrate We do so to mark the memory of your redemptive movements into our broken world, O God. Our glittering ornaments and Christmas trees, our festive carols, our sumptuous feasts, by these small tokens, we affirm that something has happened in time and space that God, on a particular night, 
in a particular place so many years ago was born to us an infant king, our prince of peace. Our wreaths and our ribbons, our colored lights, our giving of gifts, our parties with friends. These have never been ends in themselves. They are but small ways in which we repeat that sounding joy first proclaimed by angels in the skies near Bethlehem. In view of such great tidings of love announced to us and to all people, how can we not be moved to praise and celebration in this Christmas season? As we decorate our tree and as we feast and laugh and sing together, we are rehearsing our coming joy. We are making ready to receive the one who has already with open arms received us. We would prepare you room here in our hearts and here in our home, Lord Christ. Now we celebrate your first coming, Emmanuel, even as we long for your return. O Prince of Peace, our elder brother, return soon. We miss you so. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that for some strange reason, you are not ashamed to call us your children. Oh, Lord, would that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we could rise to the place, Lord, not of earning that, but of, of coming into a more fullness of what it is to be like one of your reborn, newly born, sanctified children to the glory of your praise. Thank you for this joyous season. In Jesus' name, we give thanks. Amen.